Thank you very much. It's good to see you this morning. If you could uh, turn to Luke chapter 2. Very familiar passage, obviously. And the challenge is to uh, not be too dead to the familiar, right? And so we pray that God would help us this morning as we look at a very familiar story, as we do each year at Christmas time. Um, and so I want you to think, before I read, about the question, is there a you in Christmas? Now, if we're thinking about the letter U, then of course there isn't a you in Christmas, but is there a Y-O-U in Christmas? Which means, is there something very personal about Christmas? And should we hear the story in a very personal way? And I believe Luke chapter 2 tells us, yes, we need to hear the Christmas story in a very, very personal way. At Christmas time, we think a lot about other people, buying gifts and doing things for them and getting together with them, which is very appropriate. We should be very much about that at Christmas time. It reflects the heart of God and what he gave us at Christmas time. And yet there's something about Christmas that is meant to be very personal so that if we fail to think about ourselves at Christmas time, then we can miss uh, a very, very important message from God to each one of us. So let me read for us uh, the first 40 verses of Luke chapter 2 because this is Luke's account of the birth of Christ. And it includes... uh, Eight days after the birth, it includes 40 days after the birth, but it includes um, things about uh, the birth of Jesus and him as a little baby that aren't included in the other ones. And so I want us to read the whole uh, story as Luke presents it this morning and ask God to help us see some things in fresh and new ways. So look at verse 1 of chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry 
and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to, his, to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the son of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is the word of God. As I've mentioned before, it's interesting that um, the four Gospels give us four different perspectives on the birth of Christ. Mark has no uh, birth story or any information about the birth of Jesus or the circumstances that happened before and after it. But what he does have is the whole purpose of the birth story. And as was mentioned earlier, the cross is the purpose of Jesus coming. As Brian mentioned, uh, we don't only celebrate the birth of a, of a baby, we celebrate the purpose of that birth, was, which was that he might die in our place. And Mark emphasizes that. Whereas we have uh, John, who takes us all the way back uh, to before creation and says this little baby that's born is actually God who has taken on human nature. And then we have uh, Matthew who talks about the birth of Jesus from the perspective of Joseph. 
doesn't say anything about the actual birth, but talks about what happened before the birth and what happened after the birth. But Luke actually talks about the birth of Jesus. And many have said Luke probably got his information from Mary. And so Mary was right there at the birth of Jesus. Joseph was too, but she was more than anyone involved in the birth of Jesus. And that's what we have in the the Gospel of Luke. It's probably Mary's uh, testimony uh, of what happened. And so Luke records that for us. And so we have an emphasis, you could say, on the mother's perspective on what happened at the birth of Jesus. But one of the questions that comes up is, in Matthew, we know that Joseph is in Nazareth and Mary's in Nazareth. But they end up in Bethlehem for the birth of Jesus. And the question is, why did that happen? Well, we read Luke's account and we find out part of it was the decision of an emperor. Caesar Caesar Augustus says, uh, you have to uh, be a part of a census for for the purpose of taxation. It probably also was in part the decision of Herod, who knew that the Jews didn't like uh, paying taxes to Rome, And so he may have well have been behind the idea of having everyone go back to their ancestral home because it would give it sort of a patriotic kind of feel. Go back to your ancestral home, uh, the home of your family, and be registered. And so Mary and Joseph, being of the family of David, go back to Bethlehem, which was where uh, David, King David, in the Old Testament was born. Um, There probably also was something in this with regard to the fact that Mary probably was looked at by those in Nazareth as someone who had done something wrong. She had sinned. That's why she was pregnant. And it wasn't by Joseph. And so part of the decision to go to Bethlehem may have included Joseph being sensitive to the reality that if I leave her behind, that's going to open her up to things that I don't want her to be Um, afflicted with, so to speak. And so there's all kinds of uh, decisions on a human level, but ultimately we know that it was the providence of God. It was God's decision that they end up in Bethlehem right at the perfect time, right when it was time for Jesus to be born because of Micah 5.2, which says the the, uh, uh, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So everything came together. And so it's interesting if you read Calvin and he talks about the providence of God over all of this that's happening in the Christmas story. And the way he characterizes it is he says, Mary and Joseph were led like blind persons. In the sense that he doesn't see them as saying, hey, don't you remember Micah 5, 2? We got to get to Bethlehem quick. But that wasn't probably what they were thinking. Not that they weren't godly people, not that they didn't know anything about what the prophets had said, but that probably wasn't uh, what was in view for them at that time, but God still was at work. He says, um, unconscious where they are going, uh, uh, he, God, still helps them to keep the right path because God directs their steps. So he's talking about how not only Mary and Joseph, but all of us are many times just blindly going through life. We're not even conscious of how the decisions we're making are impacting various things. And yet God is very much aware of exactly where we're going and where we need to be 
And that's what is happening in this story. And he highlights the fact that God employed, and these are his words, he employed the mandate of a tyrant to draw Mary from home that the prophecy may be fulfilled. We hear a lot about uh, mandates these days. And we also hear some talk about tyranny. Um, Neither of which should we be afraid of. That God is in charge of tyrants and he's in charge of mandates and he can actually use those as he sees fit to accomplish all his promises for his people. And therefore, we need not be afraid. Calvin says God employed that wicked tyranny for the redemption of his people. And he's still employing tyranny for the redemption of his people. We need to think about that. We need to believe that he still employs tyranny for the redemption of his people, for the provision of his people. We need not be afraid. Well, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Christmas is the beginning of God giving his Son that we might have salvation. And what I'd like to do just for a few minutes this morning is to think about Uh, the implications of the story, the true story of Christmas as it's related to us by Luke. And I want to begin with the implication that when I talk about thinking about the you in Christmas and making it personal, I don't mean that we should think that it's all about us, that um, God did what he did in sending his son was because of us and i'll explain what i mean by that in verse 14 if you look at verse 14 the angels worship god and they say glory to god in the highest they don't say glory to the value of man glory to how wonderful people are they say glory to god in the highest which is another way of saying what's happening in the giving of jesus what's happening in the birth of jesus is because of God, not because of us. And that's the place we have to start, lest we misunderstand the you in Christmas. The glory for Christmas goes to God. He gets the glory, not us, even though the word you is used several times here in this account. But the emphasis is on the glory of God, so that Jesus did not come because we are so wonderful. Jesus did not come because he couldn't live without us. But what is true is Jesus came because God is so wonderful. And he came because we cannot live without him. And so God is the special one, not us. And I emphasize that because uh, sometimes we think we can't appreciate what Jesus did unless somehow we believe that we deserve what God did did for us and yet we cannot fully appreciate christmas unless we understand we don't deserve any of it it's like calvin again says he says let us remember then the final cause meaning for christmas why god reconciled us to himself through his only begotten son it was that he might glorify his name by revealing the riches of his grace and of his boundless mercy Again, why is this important? It's because sometimes, um, even in the Christian community, you can hear songs that seem to be arguing that God did what he did and uh, Christ came because we are so valuable. Now, obviously, we're made in the image of God, but that image has been marred by sin. 
So it doesn't mean we don't have any value. But to say that Jesus did what he did because it was somehow, God was somehow compelled by how wonderful we are or how valuable we are undermines the real glory of Christmas, which is the glory of God. I don't know about you, but sometimes, um, many times, I think every Christmas when I'm trying to give a gift to someone and I think about how much they mean to me, uh, I'm tempted to think I got to find something that matches their value. I have to find a gift that's worthy of them. And the reality is I can never purchase anything or give anything that matches the value of the people I give gifts to. I mean, their their value is so much greater than what I could match in a gift. And yet sometimes people will argue, I think, one way or the other, that if Jesus is such a wonderful gift, then that much must mean that we're pretty wonderful, that the, the gift must somehow reflect upon the receiver. When really what's happening here in the Christmas story is the gift of Jesus reflects on the giver. It reflects not on the recipient, but on the giver. It shows us the generosity, the kindness, the grace, the goodness, the the wonderful uh, person that God is, not the wonderful people that we are. And it's important to think about that um, because if we start off on the wrong foundation, we can live our lives in such a way that we might think, well, if God gave me certain things, Jesus or other things, because of what he saw in me, Maybe everything else he's going to give me in life will be based on that too. And what if I end up uh, on skid row? What if I end up turning my back? What if I end up dishonoring him in great ways? Has all my hope been lost? It's sort of like the whole idea of Santa Claus. Many people have talked about this. Uh, There's the song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. He says, you better watch out, you better not cry, you better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town, he's making a list, he's checking it twice, he's going to find out who's naughty or nice. Santa Claus is coming to town, he sees you when you're sleeping and he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. What's the theology behind that? Uh, Santa actually has some um, godlike qualities like being able to be everywhere and know everything. and and uh, But Santa is very much not like God. Um, you know, one of the things I thought about, sometimes when I, I obviously read commentaries when I'm doing my study, and there are some people that will look at the shepherds, and they'll talk about why did the angels appear to the shepherds on the, at the birth of Jesus. And they'll talk in ways like, well, these shepherds, even though they were part of a class of people that were uh, considered um, sort of the scum of society because of not being ceremonially clean, and they couldn't testify in court, and they were, they were considered thieves, those kinds of things. And so um, many people will look at that and say, well, if God sent the angels to them, these shepherds must be really different. They must be godly shepherds. And I thought about that, and I thought, well, that kind of sounds like they must be worthy shepherds. That's why God sent the angels to these shepherds, because all the other shepherds aren't worthy, but they must have been really 
good shepherds, really godly people. And to me, I think that misses the whole point of the Christmas story. It misses the whole point of what we see in Luke chapter 2, is that God sent a Savior to people who needed one. He sent a, a Savior to sinners and to those who maybe more than others recognized how other people saw them and maybe were tempted to think that God uh, saw them in the same way and that they had no hope. And so God sends the angels to let them know that there is hope. And so when we think about the whole issue of the picture of Santa Claus and he's checking out whether you're naughty or nice and he'll give you gifts based on whether or not you're naughty or nice, someone has asked the question, uh, for little children who hear that and they grow up, whether in the church or outside the church, they ask the question, is it any wonder that if I believe all that as a child, when I come to be an adult, that I might have a hard time believing in a transcendent God who does not save me and give me good gifts on the basis of my works, but on the basis of his grace. They comment and say, if Santa has been my understanding of God, then I am in trouble. Because the truth is, God gives his great gift not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his grace through faith. Um, If you would look at Isaiah 55, in our small group, we've been going through a book. And one of the passages that's talked about in this book, Gentle and Lowly, is Isaiah 55. And again, Calvin is quoted in this book, and he makes an interesting statement because he's highlighting the fact that God is not like us. Santa is like us. Because we look around and we look at people and we evaluate, have they been naughty or nice to people I care about or to me? And then I base my reaction to them and my goodness toward them based on whether or not they've been naughty or nice. We put people in categories. And we relate to them or we don't relate to them based on the naughty and nice categories. But what we find in Isaiah 55, and the key verse there is uh, verse 8, where it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The interesting thing is, if you back up to verse 7, the context for that is not the idea that God has big plans that we can never imagine, but that God has great compassion that we can't fully understand. It says in verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. Which implies that the thoughts that aren't like God are the thoughts of not pardoning. And the thoughts that are and the ways that are not like God are not pardoning ways. That he says at the end of verse 7, he will abundantly pardon. And then he implies and says that we're not like that. We're not naturally prone to forgive. Not naturally prone to show compassion. We're not naturally prone to be gracious. We're not inclined that way. We're not spring-loaded that way. We're spring-loaded to be very difficult to appease. That's the phrase that Calvin uses 
He says, God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive. He is far from resembling men. That's what the Christmas story tells us, is that he doesn't come to people that are like him to reveal his salvation. He goes to people that aren't like him to reveal his salvation, because that's exactly what we need. And so the Christmas story is very important to see and very encouraging because the reality is we need Jesus because we're not like God. And if it, if God was like us, he would not have sent Jesus. Because we naturally want to condemn and get revenge on those who hurt us, who spit in our face, who ignore us, who act like we don't exist. We write them off. God is not like that. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And blessed be his name. That that is true. And that's what we see in Luke chapter 2. So that's why the glory goes to God uh, for Christmas. He's the reason for Christmas, not us. But we would be missing some important important truth that we see in Luke chapter 2 if we stopped right there. The second thing is, we're not the reason for the gift being Jesus, but we are the recipient. We are the recipient. It says in verse 11, For today in the city of David there there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now a recipient can be someone who actually receives something, or a recipient can be someone who is able to receive something. Someone has a gift that's intended for them in some sense, way or way, shape, or form. When we look at verse 11 and we see what the angel is saying to the shepherds, we might think that he's only talking to the shepherds. For you, you shepherds right here, a Savior has been born. And yet if we look back in verse 10, we realize that he's talking more broadly than that because it says, uh, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And the phrase, the people there, refers to the Jewish people. So we know it's not just for those shepherds, but it's also for all the people of Israel. But the question is, is that only what's included in the word you, the you in Christmas? And if we go on to see what Simeon says in verses 29 uh, through 32... It says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And who do those all peoples include? A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. So whenever the Bible talks about uh, Israel and the Gentiles, it's talking about the fact that the gift of Jesus is a gift to the whole world. It's not limited to the shepherds, not limited just to, um, to the Jewish people, but given to all. So that we can say the glory of Christmas goes to God, but the joy goes to us. It's meant for us. So that there's an all in the you, but there's also a very personal aspect in the you. The Bible says Jesus is the Savior of the world. Why is that? Because there is no other Savior. The Bible talks about the fact in the Old Testament over and over again that there's only one Savior, 
There's only one hope of salvation, and that's in God. Yet it makes it clear, too, that, and we'll talk about this in a minute, that gifts can be given and yet still need to be received. Um, so what's, what's the importance of this? Uh, think about it in this way. We need to um, believe that there's a sense in which a package has been delivered to every one of our doors. Uh, at this time of year, uh, if you're ordering from Amazon or other places, uh, you're likely to get some kind of tracking information. Uh, this gift is on its way. And like Jan mentioned this morning, you could actually think about uh, the prophets as um, the, your tracking feature. You know, Jesus is on his way. He's, you know, he's going he's gonna to get there. He's on his way. But then the angels show up and they're like that notification that says, your package has been delivered to your front door. And the angels tell the shepherds, your gift has been delivered through Mary, literally and figuratively. And so um, the whole question is whether or not we see Christmas as the baby Jesus not only being delivered physically, but being delivered to the world because he came to be the savior of the world. Um, when I was growing up, one of the things I watched at Christmas time was a Charlie Brown Christmas. And the interesting thing about that is that it came out in 1965 when I was three years old. And Charles Schultz said, if we're going to do this cartoon animation for TV, it has to... Um, have the true spirit of Christmas in it. He wouldn't have it any other way. And the interesting thing about this is both the character of Charlie Brown and the picture of a, uh, a Christmas tree that no one would want. If you know the story, uh, Charlie Brown goes looking for a Christmas tree and he gets the uh, scraggliest, little, ugly Christmas tree you could find. And he brings it, and um, what happens is his friends just turn on him. And they begin saying things like, you're completely hopeless, Charlie Brown. You're dumb, especially in light of what you just brought us in this Christmas tree. And they just laughed at him mercilessly. And then Charlie Brown, after all his friends walk away from him, uh, says this. He says, everything I do turns into a disaster. Try to put yourself into Charlie Brown's shoes. Charlie Brown says, I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Kind of looks up to heaven. Is there anyone? And Linus with his blanket, picture of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, walks up with his blanket and he says, uh, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And he reads... Luke 2, 8 through 14, on TV. And obviously he says, uh, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then he walks over to Charlie and he says, That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's what it's all about. Um there are those who would say that those two minutes 
are the most magical two minutes in all of TV animation. Which is interesting that they would say that. The two most magical moments. I would say it has to be two, the two most important moments of TV animation for sure because Charles Schultz said, this story, this Christmas story needs to be about something. And he knew what it needed to be about. It needed to be about what it's really about, which is Jesus who came to meet a need that we could not meet on our own. And so the implications of all this, we need to see that Jesus is a gift to every person. Why do we need to do that? Because if we don't, then will we really care when we get together with unbelievers at Christmas time, whether or not they know that Jesus? If we're thinking, well, maybe, maybe Jesus isn't for them. Maybe I should just wait until I know for sure. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. In that context, it's talking about the nation of Israel. But you read in John chapter 1, it says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. So was a child given to them, or wasn't he? Yes. Did all of them receive him? No, they didn't. But that doesn't mean he wasn't given to them. It doesn't mean he wasn't delivered to their doorstep, so to speak. Calvin puts it this way. He says, Now let it be understood that this joy was common to all people because it was indiscriminately offered to all. That Jesus, in a sense, was delivered to every person's door. Because the Bible says, There is no Savior besides me, the Lord says. First Timothy 4.10 says, We have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Savior of all men, especially of believers. So there's a sense in which every person we meet in the mall, every person we meet in our gatherings, we should think, okay, this Christmas story has them in it. But we also need to realize that this Christmas story has us in it personally. Um, Calvin makes another interesting comment when he says, when it says... Um, to you, has been, there has been given a Savior. He says, the pronoun to you is very emphatic. For it would have given no great delight to hear that the author of salvation was born unless each person believed that for himself he was born. Do you hear that? He says, it, it would not have given great delight for people to hear the news that a Savior has been born unless each person believed that for himself he was born. We will miss the joy of Christmas if we don't believe the joy of Christmas was intended for us. Which brings me to my third point, that the you that's referred to in Christmas, uh, you have been offered solid joy in the gift that has been given. Verse 10 again says, I bring you great excuse me, good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. I bring you good news of great joy. Over and over again, as as we look at the story, we see people praising God. 
Um, you got the angels praising God. You've got uh, the shepherds praising God. You've got Simeon praising God. You've got Anna praising God. And what is praise? It's just the overflow of joy. So Jesus is born, and joy is the result of it. But joy is also promised through it. Um, why is this important? It means that God is concerned about our joy. It means that God is concerned about our real, true happiness. And in the person of Jesus, he's given us a bundle of joy that is meant to bring us full and lasting joy. It's kind of like if you give uh, tickets to Disneyland, to Riker or another child. When they see that ticket, what do they see? They see Disneyland. They don't just see a piece of paper with writing on it. What did those people see when they saw Jesus? They saw the kingdom of God. They saw heaven on earth. They saw reconciliation with God. That's why it brought them joy. Because they saw not only that little baby, they saw through that baby to the truth that lay behind why he came. Joy to the world. That's why he came. That's why he lived and died and rose again, that we might have joy because God is truly concerned about our joy about our happiness in him and he's concerned about what I would call a solid joy and that's actually Calvin's phrase and I've heard other people use it too solid joy what is solid joy it implies there's a not so solid joy it implies that there are things that we might find joy and happiness in that don't last that there are Things we can find joy and happiness in that aren't full and satisfying. And that's why the Bible says things like what we find in Psalm 16, 11, where the psalmist says, You will make known to me the path of life in your presence. Speaking of God, in your presence is fullness of joy. And in your right hand there are pleasures forever. Or like what we find in John 15, where Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Is there anybody happier than God? No. That's why Jesus says, I want you to have my happiness, my joy. And I want you to have it in full and forever. Fullness of joy, forever joy is found in God. And as people have said, God actually made us to pursue our happiness. And like Blaise Pascal has said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others of avoiding it is the same desire and both attended with different views. They will, excuse me, the will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who take their own lives. That there's the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of joy. God has wired us that way. The problem is we have traded in God for the things of the world and we think we can find happiness apart from God. But the reality is, We were made to enjoy the love of God the Father. And like Calvin also says, it's only the love of God, the love of the Father, that will rid us of all fear and anxiety and will give us true joy and happiness. As C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. 
There is no such thing. So God gives us true happiness. That's why it says in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And so what is the Christmas story about? It's about God giving us Jesus and in giving us Jesus, giving us the very thing that our heart longs for. That everything that our heart really longs for is given to us in Jesus for free. Again, that's why C.S. Lewis talks about the idea of being offered infinite joy. And he pictures it as uh, offering a day at the sea or a holiday at the sea to a little child. And the little child says, I'd rather play here in the slums because the little child can't imagine that there would be anything better. Why do people run around just trying to find happiness in the things of the world because they can't imagine that there's anything better? And yet Christmas is about God telling us there is something infinitely better. And it's called my love. It's called my presence. It's called fellowship with me. Isaiah 55, which we looked at earlier, actually begins with God saying, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Free. It's a free gift. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Which says God cares whether or not we're satisfied or not. He cares whether or not we have real happiness or not. But that happiness is in him. That's what joy is. It's happiness in God. And so he says, God says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Which brings me to my last point. That you must respond to the gift. Look at verse 14 again. The first part says glory to God in the highest. But the next part says, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And the question is, what is that phrase? What does it mean? It's actually translated different ways. And the King James is translated, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Obviously, in the New American Standard, it's translated a little differently. And so people, it's a, it's a difficult phrase to translate. And some people would say it just reveals the fact that God is showing through the birth of Jesus his good will toward all men. I think that's part of it. Others would say it's talking about how God in his sovereign choice sets his favor upon men so that they can have peace. And I believe that's true too. But I think he's also highlighting the fact that there is a a responsibility to receive by faith the gift that has been given. The reason why I say that is it tells us in Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please God. So if we're talking about the idea that um, on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased, what men is God pleased with? He's pleased with those who have faith. Faith in what? His promises, faith in who? Jesus, those who receive the gift that has been offered to them. Why is this important? Because Christmas makes us responsible. We tend to think of Christmas as simply a holiday to enjoy. To read the Bible and Christmas is something that makes us responsible. It's interesting, um, you've got in Matthew chapter 2, you've got the scribes and the The uh, religious leaders, they hear about uh, the coming of Jesus through the the Magi and they don't go to Bethlehem. 
the shepherds hear about the birth of Jesus in um, Bethlehem. They're not told to go there, but they go. There's no command, go see. But they hear it, and they hear the implications of it, and they go. They realize that this isn't just information. This is actually a call. That the, the announcement of a Savior is a call to action. It's not just information. And so that's the way we need to hear it. We're responsible with what we do with Christmas. Not just in terms of whether or not I'm giving gifts to people, whether or not I'm really receiving the gift that has been delivered, has been given to us. And again, there's a difference between a gift given and a gift received. Um, it's interesting, uh, a lot of times in this time of year, uh, there can be gifts given, placed at someone's door, and a thief comes along and steals that gift. Actually, there's terminology like that when Jesus tells the story of the parable of the, the sower and the seed. He talks about the uh, hard soil. The seed is sown, but Satan comes along and snatches it up. So that there's no response. And so there, there's the reality of the gift. There's the announcement of the gift. And yet there may be the, the delivery of the gift in some sense, and yet it's not received. Either because maybe stolen away in some sense or because we don't care. We, we're not interested in the gift. And that's what John 1 is talking about, that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He showed up at their door and they said, no, thank you. I don't want that gift. What does it mean to receive the gift? And I'll just close with this, bring it to a close. To receive the gift of God's son is to trust him in light of who he is. It's not about simply praying a prayer. It's not simply about, quote, accepting Jesus, as it's often talked about, because if you don't really understand what that means, I have all kinds of ideas behind it. The question is, do we receive Jesus in light of who he is? And who is he? He's Lord and he's Savior. And so to receive Jesus is to receive him as a Savior from sin which means I care about whether or not I'm saved from sin, which means I want to be saved from sin. Therefore, there's a heart of repentance there, that it matters to me that I know that my sin is against God and I deserve, I deserve hell for that. And that sin will never lead me into happiness, that I need to be both forgiven and I need to be set free from sin, that I might be reconciled to God and that I might enjoy God. So I need to receive Jesus as a Savior from sin. And I need to receive Jesus as the Lord of all because that's who he is. And therefore, I gladly submit to him believing that he's a good shepherd. He's a ruler who shepherds his people. He doesn't beat the sheep. He leads them to pastures that will satisfy them. He leads them to joy, full and lasting joy, so that I receive Jesus by re repenting and believing, by trusting and obeying lastly the question is do i have to be fit to do that do i have to repent enough to be able to believe that jesus will receive me do i have to pray hard do i have to feel certain things uh, charles spurgeon uh, heard that a lot in his ministry people would come to him and say you know what i know that 
in some sense, Jesus has been laid at my door, but I don't feel like I'm fit to receive him. I don't feel like I've repented enough. I don't feel like I feel bad enough about my sin. I don't feel what I need to feel. I don't think I know enough. I just don't feel fit. Basically, what he said was, it's not about your fitness. It's about whether or not you can receive Jesus as one who is fit to be your Lord and your Savior. Do you believe Jesus is fit to be your Lord and your Savior? It's not about your fitness. It's about his fitness. Is he Lord and a good one? Is he Savior, an able and willing one? If you believe that, then entrust yourself to him. And he will not cast you out. He will receive you. In conclusion, we can't celebrate Christmas as we should without seeing the goodness of God as the reason for it. It's God's goodness, not ours. We can't celebrate Christmas as we should without seeing Jesus as the great gift of Christmas. We might receive a lot of good gifts this year, but Jesus is the greatest gift you could ever receive. We can't celebrate Christmas unless we see ourselves in the story. That there's a you in the story, and it's me and you. We can't celebrate as we should unless we see Jesus has given to us personally and has given to those of us, those of us around us. And we can't see and celebrate as we should unless we see Jesus as the key to the happiness that we long for. It's not to be found in that um, gift you might get at Christmas time, no matter how fun it might be. That's not going to satisfy your soul. Uh, in fact, it's going to be old and worn out before you know it, whatever you receive this Christmas. Only Jesus can usher us into full and lasting happiness. But we have to receive that gift. Uh, Christmas is the notification. The gift of God's Son has been delivered. What will you do with the notification? So one question is, ha- is ha- have you received the gift through repentance and faith? And secondly, are you resting and rejoicing in that gift? If you have received that gift, are there other things that are overwhelming you and robbing you of joy? You've received everything you need and everything you could ever desire in Jesus. And Christmas calls us to rest and rejoice in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of Christmas. We thank you for the good news of great joy. We thank you for the good news of an able and willing Savior in Jesus who has been delivered. And we pray that we would see that that joy, that that great Lord and Savior is for each one of us, both individually and to the world, Help us to see whether or not we've received that gift or not through repentance and faith. And if we have, if we have not, please grant us grace to do that even today, to return from our sin and entrust ourselves to an able and willing Savior. If we've already done that, we pray that you would grant us grace to lay all of our concerns at the feet of a wonderful Lord and Savior, whether it be the concern of our own sin or the concern of our daily circumstances, help us to rest and rejoice in the greatest gift of all, 
Father, please prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Prepare our hearts for celebrating the purpose of Christmas in the next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.